Hey, deserving listeners. Today, I thought I would answer patron emails. Let's get into it. Anonymous upper tier patron writes, I live by myself, and while in quarantine, I have a limited amount of people that I see. My self-care activities are more social normally, spending time with friends, going to dance classes, etc. I feel more energized with others around me. My therapist says I should explore activities that I can do at home alone since we are in a pandemic. No matter what I try by myself, I do not get the same amount of enjoyment as with others around and find these activities like taking bubble baths, watching movies, and even talking on the phone and Zoom. I find these things to be boring and unfulfilling. Can being too extroverted be problematic? End of email. Yes, there are downsides to being extroverted for sure, particularly during a lockdown. (laughs) But introverts need a social life too, so everyone is suffering, but particularly extroverts. And to act like there's a solution to this is silly. There's no solution to a lack of human contact. It's like saying, how do I cope with the fact that I don't have any water to drink or that I have a broken leg and I can't get to the hospital? There's no coping with that. Putting in prisons, one of the uh, prime ways of, of torturing people, which is completely inhumane, is to isolate them from other human beings, is to put them in the hole, in a isolation cell where they have no contact with other people and they're just fed food a few times a day through a slot. People go insane, literally. They hallucinate. They have all sorts of mental illness problems. Even after just a few days, we are social creatures. We all understand that when we leave a dog home alone with no one to interact with for a few days or even just a few hours, they're going to have all sorts of symptoms. Well, we're the same. We're just as social as dogs, maybe more. And so the lockdown, there's no way of coping with it effectively for anyone, particularly extroverts. Research is already showing effects from this pandemic from a variety of different angles. Obviously, being socially distanced and isolated is causing problems, but also just the fear and the political strife and everything. So and the economic problems that people are having. So we're already seeing some uh, studies showing widespread problems, even among people who have, quote unquote, good coping skills. And over the next 10 years, we're going to see a lot of research come out about this. I'm old enough to be a therapist when 9-11 happened. And there was a lot of research that came out after 9-11 that studied how that event had an effect on people. And from my opinion, uh, 9-11 had far fewer ground-level effects, grassroots-level effects on people as the pandemic does. 9-11, you could argue, was mainly a thing in the United States and maybe even mainly a thing in New York City. I mean, definitely as a Seattleite, it deeply affected me. But in terms of my day-to-day life, it didn't really affect things. Like, if I hadn't known about 9-11, which would be completely absurd, my life probably wouldn't have changed that much. I would have known more security at the airports. I might have heard a little bit more talk about, uh, you know, Muslims and this sort of thing. But in terms of my day-to-day life, it wasn't really affected. The pandemic, for most of us, has affected us for months, perhaps years, in very fundamental ways, i.e. the ability to hug your own loved ones, the ability to 
hang out with them, the ability to go to a restaurant, the ability to enact your extroversion by recharging your battery through being with other people, particularly for those of you who are living by yourself. Normally, you can still see a lot of people in person, at least go to the store and see other human beings. This is a disaster for all of us. And there's all, I've been asked from the beginning, you know, what are your tips about this? How do I cope with this? And in the beginning, I had little tips here and there. But over time, I just thought, you know what, I, I'm going to stop answering this question because it implies that there's an answer. And I, I hate to be depressing, but it, it's the truth. Now, if I did have a tip, and I've had this from the beginning, especially when I was working with my therapists, my supervisees, and my teachers was that normally, this is just for me, normally when I'm talking on the phone, not so much on the phone, but particularly over Zoom, I'm very surface level. I don't go in depth. I find it very difficult to be very personable or real or authentic over Zoom. I find it much easier to do it over phone. In fact, for most, if not all of my clients, I don't, I don't see them over Zoom, which is very weird for pandemic therapy. Most of it is done over some form of video conference, and I find it so much easier to help people over phone. I don't know if it's just because I'm used to it, because, you know, in my 25 years, I've occasionally had sessions over the phone, and I just don't like the video calls. But regardless of what you're doing, whether it's phone or Zoom or whatever way you're getting contact with other human beings, try to access authenticity. Try to really go for it. Don't be surface. Try in that moment to have a real human-to-human interaction. Probably means vulnerability. Probably means asking deeper questions. Everyone participating in that. When I have episodes with Bob, for example, we're doing it over Zoom. We're, we're, we see each other over Zoom and we're recording. And I find those discussions often to be extremely deep. And I feel very connected to him and I feel very uh, heard and understood and fulfilled socially. Whereas if I hung out with Bob in person and we didn't have that kind of depth, I might not feel as recharged. And so my tip is, is that get on the phone, get on Zoom and really switch your paradigm away from surface talk to more depth talk if you want. All right, let's go into another email here. This next email is from upper tier patron Kimberly from New Hampshire. She writes, my husband and I are going to marriage counseling. I don't really like the counselor, though. We have been to about 20 sessions, and I feel like she does not understand where I'm coming from and what I like to get accomplished in these sessions. I don't think she is a good fit for us, and I would like to find someone else. I don't think she listens to me or validates my concerns. What is the best way to switch marriage counselors? Since my husband and I are both clients, it isn't as simple as saying my personal individual counselor isn't working for me and then moving on. End of email. Well, so, you know, I get the concerns of that you and your husband both share the therapist and you don't want to be the veto, so to speak. It sounds like your husband might like the therapist. But if you feel like it's a bad match, then you should definitely consider switching. As a client myself, I've done that. And there's no use in trying to force the issue. It's normal to shop around. It's normal for one member of a couple to not really feel like it's a fit. And it's fine. 
there's a pretty good chance that if you shop around a few more therapists that you will find someone that both of you like. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, to find someone that only one of you likes and the other one doesn't feel heard is definitely not optimal. In, in some uh, ways, you could consider it like a complete no-go uh, because the relationship is very important. When I think about the client or the therapist that I've talked to who I felt that way about, and I felt that, where I felt like the therapist wasn't really listening to me. I felt like the therapist just... I, it was hard for me to imagine that anyone felt like the therapist was a good listener, but I figured, well, they have a thriving practice, so some people must feel heard by this person. All I know is I don't feel heard by this person, and so let's pull the plug because there's just no point in moving on. Having said that, you can absolutely bring that up as a last-ditch effort with the therapist. Just tell them, I don't feel heard by you, and I'm thinking about switching. Can can we switch how we talk here because I feel like if we don't change the way we interact, I'm probably going to want to look for a different therapist. You know, give, give the therapist a chance. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, I know that you talk about infidelity recovery occasionally, which is a form of trust building. I hear you say that recovery is possible from infidelity. I am in a relationship currently with someone who has experienced sexual trauma in their past Recently, I was kissing and touching her without realizing that I hadn't asked for consent, and this triggered her past traumas, and our relationship has had to build itself over again. Rightfully, she does not trust me anymore to touch her. I know I have hurt her, and I was wondering if you've seen this happen in other couples. End of email. Yes, absolutely. It happens a lot more often than people want to talk about ranging from mild transgressions to full-on sexual assault. It's a very difficult thing for people to talk about. One, because the victim often feels like there's something wrong with them because they don't know that it's okay to acknowledge the fact that you feel assaulted or transgressed upon by your partner, by your wife, by your husband. It's also very difficult for the perpetrator to admit that they did something wrong and no one wants to be called abusive or even a rapist. And I've had conversations, many conversations like this with clients where we talk about how one of the members assaulted the other person or was on the spectrum of rape to the other person and recovery needs to occur. There's a lot of reasons why this can happen in couples. Sometimes it's just simply a misunderstanding. Sometimes people just think they are supposed to, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people like to have sex. And sometimes it, it's communicated or misunderstood that aggression is okay or that doing certain things in a certain forcefulness is okay. And then later on, it's it's considered like, no, I didn't like that. And so sometimes it's just a misunderstanding. Other times it's just full-on psychopathy, obviously. Some people can be psychopaths. Some people are psychopaths and will not treat their partners very well. Could be intoxication. There's a lot of examples of being intoxicated on alcohol and misunderstandings occur or inner aggressions come out or someone is very intoxicated and unable to respond and the next day feels like an assault happened, even if it was their partner. 
Could be hidden aggression or not so hidden aggression that one person has for another person. Could be modeling. Sometimes we've been modeled things that are not okay to just forge ahead with with uh, our partners and lots of other reasons. So, yeah, anonymous patron, what you do is you set out to recover. You accidentally, it sounds like, I'm not quite sure, traumatized your partner and now your partner is pulling back and you completely understand that. So I commend you for not getting upset. Sounds like you understand and you have empathy. And it's not infidelity, but it is in the same category, I suppose, if you're talking about recovery from a trust uh, incursion, a trust violation. And it might take a long time. And I, when I've worked with couples on this, it can range from one session to a hundred sessions. It just depends on what happened. But the key is, is that everyone, mainly you as the perpetrator, can admit that you did something wrong and that you're sorry. The faster, you, and it sounds like you've done that, which is fantastic, the faster you can do that in therapy, the better. Because if you can just say, I'm sorry, here's why, I didn't know, or I, I have a problem, or whatever it is that you can dig down deep and figure out what went wrong there, then that is the road to recovery for you in terms of so you don't do it again, and two, so that your partner can see, oh, okay, my my partner cares and is working on it, and I trust that my partner wants to not do this again and has a path forward to not do it again. While I'm on the topic, whenever you've done something wrong, admit it, and also dig down deep and figure out why, regardless of what it was. If it was just calling your partner a name or not picking your partner up after work on time, figure out what went wrong there and show your partner that you care enough to investigate in a humble way where you made a mistake. Usually it's innocent. Usually it's something that you just didn't get or whatever. The way you describe it, anonymous patron, is that you were kissing and touching her without realizing that you hadn't asked for consent. So it's possible that for you, that's not a thing, that when you're kissing your partner, asking for consent isn't something that you worry about, but your partner does, and you trigger their traumas. So it, it could be that you just didn't get it or you didn't understand sexual trauma very well or you weren't picking up on the cues. And so show that you are dedicated to learning what you did wrong so that you can not do it again. You know, it's all part of it. Now, this could be a deal breaker for your partner. I don't know. But anyway, talk with your therapist about all of that. All right. This next email is from patron Alexandra from California. She writes, after listening to you talk about Antioch's Couple and Family Therapy Program at Seattle campus in your podcasts, I decided to look it up myself, and from what I saw, it looks like a really good program. I've looked up other accredited programs in my state of California, and they were good, but Antioch's program in Seattle appeared to have stood out the most. I'm interested in applying after I graduate. I'm, a, I'm currently a junior at my university. However, I live in California, and I plan on becoming licensed in practice in California after getting my graduate degree. Is there a way to get around this? If so, how? End of email. Yeah, I'll just briefly talk about this because it's very specific, but I actually get a lot of questions like this from applicants and prospective students. So California has a very particular uh, licensing process as opposed to the rest of the states in the union. 
And, uh, but a lot of California people come to Seattle campus and get an education here and go back to California to work. And there's a, there's a, it's a thing, there's some hoops you have to jump through, but it's totally doable and it's not that hard. Uh, but the, so don't worry about your practice or getting licensed in California, even though you're getting your degree in, in Seattle. The degree in Seattle is geared towards Washington state law, but it's not that different from California. And, and once you get here, there are people here, there are professors in the couple and family therapy program who actually know this process very well and can walk you through it. I don't because I've never had to comb through those details, but it's totally doable. And by the way, I think Antioch Seattle's couple and family therapy program is awesome. In fact, I could brag about all the outcomes. So part of my job over the past 10 plus years has been outcomes, meaning that I measure all the things that are, uh, you know, evidence as to whether or not our program is doing well. And there are certain markers, a lot of markers that I look at, but one of them is how many people are getting licensed, how many people are passing the licensing exam, how many people are working in the field, what kind of income do they have, how satisfied are they with the program, would they recommend the program after graduating, all these kinds of things. And the statistics are extremely high (laughs) with satisfaction is very high. Like it's not uncommon for us to give a survey to all of our alumni and have all a hundred percent of them say that they absolutely would recommend Antioch's program. So we have, and, and I'll tell you why one is that it's an older program. The, the counseling program in Antioch Seattle is, I don't know, four or five decades old. And the couple and family therapy program specifically is about 25 years old, but it basically grew out of the larger counseling program. And the the thing is, is that when you're in a program that is, say, 5, 10, 15 years old, there's still a lot of wrinkles that they're still ironing out. And as a program, as a former program director myself, I'm here to tell you, education programs in graduate school have a lot of wrinkles. There's just so many effing details and so many problems that can arise, and they're constantly coming up. And every year you dedicate your program and your staff to ironing out a few more of those wrinkles. And then the next year you iron out some more like little things like how your syllabi are formatted. It it takes a tremendous amount of effort to wrangle all the professors to utilize a particular format for syllabi. And if you're, and, and that's just one of no joke, literally thousands of little details that you have to iron out as a program. And Antioch, Seattle has been around a long time, and the the counseling programs have been around a long time, and those ironing things have been done a long time. And another thing is, is we have a lot of students, and that means that if anything's wrong, it's going to get known very quickly. We also have a lot of professors, all of whom are talented and interesting and ambitious and nice and, you know, have a particular research angle, and so... I'm really quite proud of the couple and family therapy program in Seattle. I'm sure, and I know there are other programs out there as well, for sure. 
So it's not like I'm saying there's some sort of evidence that we're better than other programs. All I can say is that uh, alumni and graduates from our program un- almost unanimous- unanimously will say that they enjoy the program overall. You know, it's not like they didn't have complaints. <laughs> there's always complaints. I've been through I, – I'm a graduate of the couple and family therapy program. I had complaints, but overall I enjoyed it. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Courtney from Toronto. She says, I saw my grandfather die in his home recently after a battle with cancer. Also, my mother just suffered a sudden cardiac arrest in the home, and I had to perform CPR on her before the medics came. But she was essentially pronounced dead and had to be revived. I constantly I constantly see image of her face and the event. And I was wondering if that is my brain asking me to see it again and learn to cope with it, or if it is something I need to push it away when it pops up. What is the purpose of your brain replaying traumatic events at seemingly random times, and how do you handle it? End of email. Well, two things. One is you need to get treatment. You need to seek a trauma specialist, and don't delay, because you have... The beginnings of PTSD, and if left untreated, it can cascade over time and become uh, quite a problem. Now, it's possible that it won't, and that your flashbacks are temporary and would are just a product of how recent the event was. But it's also quite possible that left untreated, it your symptoms could become a hundred times worse. No joke. So, find a trauma specialist. But to answer your question, why does our brain do this? So we don't know why because we don't really understand the brain very well. People claim to understand the brain, but we really don't. But the hypotheses are varied. But the one that I adhere to is that when, when we evolved, as we evolved into our species, and I'm guessing that other species can do this as well, but we can't talk with them, so we can't know. But we definitely know humans do this, where when we go through something very scary, something very distressing, then our brains tend to really pay attention to it. And there's a lot of evidence of this. One is, is that we t- time will slow down. You'll hear people say that. They'll, they'll say that, yeah, as the car was you know, crashing, I felt like everything was moving slowly. I don't know the exact neurological language, but I know enough to know that the brain knows, okay, something is happening right now. Record every little event because this is very important. It makes sense, right? When we were on the African savanna and a tiger was going to eat us or a panther was going to chase us and we managed to get away, then it's very helpful if our brain remembered a lot of the details of that such that we could actually protect ourselves and maybe even tell the story to our tribe such that they could protect themselves even though they weren't at the event themselves. So it's very important that we pay attention to certain things. If we're just walking along and there's a river going by and there's a butterfly, it's not critical that we record that event you know, second by second. Whereas when the panther uh, you know, was stalking us and we thought we heard a little little crunch of a leaf and then we saw something out of the corner of our eye, we heard the padding of footsteps behind us that were speeding up 
And then we turn around and we see the panther's ears sticking up above the grass. And then we run and we hear the panther uh, running after us. And then we picked up a rock. You know, the whole process is extremely critical to remember because survival depends on it and our ability to tell the story is helpful as well. So as humans, we're animals and we have this mechanism still. And sometimes it helps us. Maybe it helps us with car accidents. Maybe it helps us when we're in a sticky social situation at school or something that we remember it very clearly and that we could try to learn from the event and that it plagues us. It, it pops into our mind. You could consider a, a lesser problem like, say, you're at school and you're in the fifth grade and you do something kind of socially weird and you're getting ostracized and then later – or you're getting kind of ostracized. And then later as you're on the bus home and as you are watching TV later and when you wake up in the morning the next day, it pops into your head. And you're forced to relive that moment. You're forced to think about it. And the brain is saying, okay, let's, let's learn from that. Something, something bad happened back there. Let's try to really learn from this. Let's not ignore. Let's not just move on. Let's really try to mull this over. All right. So in a lot of instances, this is helpful. In some instances, it is not helpful. The brain doesn't know the difference between something that is helpful to hold on to versus something that's not helpful. Basically, according to the theory, the brain just notices how stressed out it is and chooses, okay, toggle switch on now, start recording every little detail and store it away in a file. And I'm using computer language, which is a little problematic, but I hope you get my meaning and set a program such that this file will pop into this person's head, you know, say every 30 minutes for the next five years, because this is a big deal and they need to uh, learn from this experience. But for you, Courtney, from Toronto, watching your grandfather die in his home recently after a battle of cancer, what are you supposed to learn from that? There's nothing survival oriented that, that is likely to be learned by reliving that moment your mother having a sudden cardiac arrest and you performing CPR and being plagued by this in a periodic fashion afterwards probably isn't going to be very utilitarian or very helpful in your life. Maybe it will be, I don't know, but, but it doesn't sound like it's very helpful to you. So sometimes this mechanism works against us and causes much more problems for us than, uh, than good things. And so that's why you need a trauma specialist to help you with this, because what can happen for many people going through trauma is the flashbacks cause so much distress and can essentially re-traumatize you. And a year later, your symptoms just get worse and worse and worse. The flashbacks get worse. You become much more tired of the flashbacks. The flashbacks can make you very hypervigilant about certain triggers to your trauma. You can end up being very depressed because you just feel like you need to pull away from reality just to cope. You might have dissociation. You might have all sorts of issues that can develop after trauma happens. That's why we call it post-traumatic because it seems to develop over time after the trauma. When, when you have a traumatic event, it's not common to have 
PTSD symptoms right away. It usually develops over time. And one of the reasons is because people go untreated and they notice, they're like, wow, I'm having all these flashbacks. And sometimes that can, that can progress. So make sure you get the treatment that you deserve. All right, let's take a break. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist. But I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, that's how you can show us that you like what we do. When you become a patron, you actually very fundamentally support what we're doing here. We wouldn't be able to do, we wouldn't be able to have all the content that we have if the people weren't patrons. And so when you become a patron, you're, you're very much supporting what we do. Um, I couldn't, I can't emphasize that enough. All right. Patron Kara from New York says, how can we identify emotionally abusive behavior? What is the line between couples fighting and abuse? I exhibit traumatic responses like dissociating and self-harm following fights where my partner, where my partner attacks aspects of me. But does that mean abuse has taken place or does that mean that I'm too sensitive? It's further complicated because the fighting only takes place when my partner is binge drinking during bipolar episodes. End of email. Yeah, I get this question a fair amount. And the first thing I'll say, Patron Kara, is I hope you're in therapy. One, for your dissociation and self-harm. And two, for your couple relationship. And three, that he is getting the help that he needs since he has bipolar episodes. I suspect that he isn't getting the treatment he needs because, uh, or that it's in the beginning of his treatment protocol because usually, or at least we would hope that his episodes would be less extreme. I don't know. But anyway, so I hope the two of you are in therapy individually and as a couple. Very, very important, obviously. But you're asking, you know, what's the line between two people fighting in a couple and abuse? Well, it's just a matter of, of how you define it and how you look at it. I think there are certain things that most people would, would agree crosses the line into abuse, obviously using physical harm or intimidation or calling someone a name or making someone feel afraid, making someone feel intimidated, making someone feel lesser. But it's a hard thing to define. And what's the point in defining it really is the question, patron Kara, why do you want to know? Uh, all we can say for sure is that he will binge drink when he's going through a bipolar episode, according to you, he will uh, get into some kind of fight, whether we call it a fight or an emotional abusive episode with you 
and you will have traumatic responses. You'll dissociate, you'll self-harm afterwards, and you feel abused. And so that's a problem. Uh, there's just no way around it. <laughs> like uh, uh, your dichotomy probably points to your trauma that part of you is like, hmm, this feels abusive to me. But on the other hand, maybe I'm just being too sensitive. Well, that means it's your fault and it's not your fault. If there's, if you're dissociating in particular, it's not your fault. If you're engaging in self-harm to cope with whatever he's doing, that's not your fault. Even if an outsider would view his behavior as non-abusive, even if you just said, if a, if a third person watching be like, eh, no, that's pretty far from abuse. It doesn't matter. It's still affecting you deeply and you need to get the help you need and you need him to understand what he's doing to hurt you. And he needs to understand about his behavior and his bipolar. You know, there's just a lot of things that I'm hearing in your question might be pointing to the fact that you were abused when you were growing up and made to feel like it was always your fault and made to feel like you don't matter and made to feel like you're you're stupid for a feeling as though you're being transgressed upon. So don't worry about whether or not it's abuse or just fighting. You're clearly suffering a high degree and deserve something to change in your dynamic and in his behavior. You deserve that. All right. Patron Matt from Minneapolis writes, despite my undergrad being in English literature, I have given serious consideration to going to grad school to get a marriage and family therapy degree. I have been a patron for what seems like over a year and just recently re-listened to your EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy Deep Dive, and have been watching Sue Johnson's Available Couples Therapy sessions on YouTube. I remember during your YouTube Therapist Reacts to Showtime's Couples Counseling series that you said there wasn't many actual videos to share with your students, and this show was especially unique because it showed real couple sessions. My question, could you direct me to any publicly available resources where couples therapy sessions can be watched? And if not, isn't the lack of recorded sessions a serious problem for those who want to become therapists? Obviously, such a session would need to be would need the consent of the clients involved. I just find it strange that aspiring therapists have to role play or act out scenarios to sharpen their tool set. End of email. Yeah. So there are recorded sessions that you could definitely watch. Some of them are on YouTube. Some of them would be available at a university library. But there is a, it's a desert. There is not enough. And of the videos that are available, I find most of them to be not very good. And it's hard for the, some of the reasons you suggested. One is that you have to get the clients to consent. For me, if, if someone came to me and said, if, you know, when I was in therapy and said, hey, do you mind if we record this and show it to a bunch of graduate students or show it on YouTube? I'd be like, F no, no way. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want my therapy sessions broadcast to the entire world. So it is a tall ask. You know, it's a tall order to ask someone to do that. And two, you can't pay them, right, because they're clients. And so there's these ethical considerations there. The other thing is that in order for someone to, because early, so, you know, I've been doing this podcast for over 12 years and occasionally I would have this inspiration because I'm always like thinking of new things to do where I would actually hire people because I had the same kind of problem, Matt, is like, how come there aren't good videos out there of good therapy? 
And I thought, well, maybe I'll just make them my own because I know how to make videos. And so, you know, I'll put mine out there. And I thought, well, I can't bother my clients with it. (laughs) So I thought I would actually hire actors who knew how to do improv. And I, and I still might do it, by the way. Uh, don't bother me to do it because it'll just put more pressure on me and I don't want to feel that <laughs> kind of pressure. But, uh, but you know, to do that, I'd have to hire actors. I'd have to pay them. I'd have to coach them. I'd have to t- sort of engineer them to be a good couple in therapy, this kind of thing. Now, I could find real couples to treat, and there are examples of this. Like, I think, uh, what's her face? I can't remember her name, but she has a podcast, Esther Perel, right, where she has couple sessions. The problem is, of the very few examples and people out there that are doing sessions like this, Esther Perel, Sue Johnson, a lot of people don't like the way that these therapists operate, and they aren't necessarily wonderful representations of therapy, in my opinion. Maybe it's just a style thing for me, but I don't, I've never seen a publicly available session that fits even close to what I do as a therapist. I've heard people talk in ways that I think are close to me, like uh, Otto Kernberg talks very similar to me. I find that I relate to him pretty well. And there's others, John Norcross, some others. And Sue Johnson talks pretty close to the way I talk, but the way she operates as a therapist is very different from the way I operate. And it's fine. People find her to be great, and obviously a lot of people like her model, um, and I like the principles of her model. Anyway, point is, is that, yeah, Matt, it, it's a problem, and it, it what it requires is someone who thinks they can actually make money doing it because it costs so much money. And so many therapists are terrible with technology and terrible with the internet that very, 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 very few clinicians manage to actually even have the tool set to actually make a video about this. And if they're going to go through all that trouble, like Sue Johnson, they're trying to sell a book or they're trying to sell a training or they're trying to sell some other kind of thing. And so you're going to get a very kind of different sort of therapist, right? So it, it, it's a very, it's a big problem. And one of the things that I found, because a lot of you uh, listeners were like, oh, you have to watch this show, Couples Therapy on Showtime. And I was doing my reaction videos to it. And I thought, oh my God, this is real therapy. And I looked it up on the internet and I think that officially it's not real couples therapy, but it is very, very similar, if not identical, to what couples therapy can look like. Now, I'm not super enthused with the therapist and how she operates. Again, I can't tell if it's a style thing, but at least the way that the couples act. So I teach a class called Applied Couples Therapy, and in the class, we're supposed to do labs where we actually have the students try their couples therapy on actual couples. And since we can't get actual couples, what we do is we take volunteers from the class to act like they're in a couple. And so I've spent a lot of time coaching students who are not improv actors on how to act like a real couple, and, it, and they never really get it quite right. And so to see this TV show, uh, Couples Counseling or Couples Therapy, I can't remember what it's called. It's Couples Couples Therapy? Couples, I think it's called Couples Therapy on Showtime. Anyway, so what I'm going to do is I'm, gonna, I'm still going to do that in my class, uh, Applied Couple, but 
I'm also going to show these videos. I'm going to show uh, this this TV show in the in the class because it provides such a wonderful example that's better, in my opinion, than anything in the academic world. And there's there's nothing in the academic world, and maybe there is, and I've never come across it that even comes close to a Showtime TV show in terms of providing students with a real glimpse of what it's like to be in couples counseling, to be in couples therapy. So, yeah, it's a problem. And it's a problem in general, not just with couples therapy, but therapy in general. It's hard to find good videos of any therapist operating. And a lot of the videos are old. I mean, some of the, I would say 95% of the therapy videos are from before 1985 and so they look weird and they talk weird and the the audio is bad and the the, everything just looks a little different and so uh, now i don't know if that's true 95 percent, but it's it's a problem and what ends up happening essentially patron matt is that you have so let me just explain graduate school the typical kind of situation is that you spend a good amount of time taking classes in graduate school, marriage and family therapy, and you're learning theories and you're learning how to write papers and you're investigating your countertransference potential and you're learning different models and you're learning different language and you're learning little skills as a therapist. And then you start your internship and you actually start treating clients and you realize, oh my God, I did not know what therapy really was. So when you start your internship... That's when you really begin to understand what it's like to be a professional and to be a clinician. And after a year or a year and a half of internship, you get you get a pretty good picture of it. And then add another few years after graduation, and, and you definitely know what it's like. And there's no video watching that will give you a really clear picture of what it's like to sit in the chair. And so so even though we don't have a lot of good videos, which I think we need to have, I don't think it would solve the overall problem of actually giving people the experience of sitting in the chair as a therapist. I remember watching videos of therapist therapy sessions before I went to internship and having a very weird version in my mind of what I was going to do in therapy. Once you're actually in the therapist chair, you realize it's very difficult to have a plan. It's very difficult to be in control. It's very difficult to move therapy quickly, especially as quickly as you're hoping to as a novice. And there's just a lot of wisdom that you get. I've been practicing as a therapist for 24 years, and I'm still learning. And I was very much learning in the first 15 years. It's a very weird profession. It's very strange to do this job. And you are never really done learning and there's so much to learn and your countertransference clouds your mind and you know it's it's just a lot and so so although i wish there were more videos at the same time i don't think it would solve the overall problem all right this next email is from anonymous patron he writes i have borderline and a complex trauma history and i have a disorganized attachment style i'm currently in dbt and attachment schema based couples therapy I finally feel like I really do deserve my therapist. However, something I have asked a lot of providers but can't seem to grasp 
is how do people know when a relationship is worth keeping and is safe? How do people tell the difference between a red flag and a past trauma being triggered? End of email. Yeah. So if you didn't catch the question, how do you, you're in a situation, you're in a couple, you're in a relationship and you, you, something happens in the relationship and you feel really bad and you're trying to figure out, is this a red flag of something that is bad happening? Is this red flag, meaning I should probably break up with this person or is just, just my past trauma being triggered or is this something in between? It's a very difficult question for people with complex trauma history and relational traumas to answer because it could be both. And there's really no way of being able to determine that for yourself, especially when you're in the beginning of treatment. So I get the question. I think it's a very worthy question. It's a question that you can definitely ask in couples therapy and you can even ask in DBT uh, classes as well. And the path that I've seen a lot of people go on is that as they recover, they have a much better sense of the answer to that question, that uh, they have a much better sense of like, okay, I'm pretty sure that 90% of my reactivity in this moment is due to what happened to me as a child. And although my partner did something wrong, I times it by 10 and although I have a right or grounds to complain to my partner, I probably need to bring it down a, a number of notches to match what I think actually happened, even though I feel really, really bad right now. So uh, once you recover far enough, it, usually people start to emerge that, that understanding. Uh, or they learn in the moment of, huh, yeah, I think my partner is abusive in some ways and that's not okay. And this is a deal breaker. That kind of behavior is a deal breaker. It's making me feel very, very bad, but it's not just because of my past trauma. I think this person actually is guilty of flying off the handle and being unfair to me. So, you know, continue talking with your, your, your couples therapist is the best person to answer that question, honestly, because you could just say, so my partner does this and that. Is that a is that on them or is that on me or is that in the middle? What's going on there? It's a wonderful conversation to have. All right, this next question is similar to a past question. Patron Amelia asks, uh, number one, I'm torn between doing a mental health counseling program versus a marriage and family therapy program. I want to work in private practice with adult individuals and potentially specialize in complex and attachment trauma. Is it silly to do a marriage and family therapy program when I don't want to see couples or families? Or will it give me a deeper understanding of relationship trauma that I'd get with a MHC program and therefore be worthwhile given my interests? Um, so just chime me in here. Yeah, if you do not plan on working with couples or families, and you only, particularly if you plan on working with adults only, adult individuals, I don't see any point in getting a marriage and family therapy degree for a number of reasons. One is, is half of your education is going to be on theory and practice regarding how to work with couples and families and kids, by the way. And two, at your internship, you are likely going to be forced to work with couples and families and children, and that is not who you want to work with. So 
uh, for sure, if you're just like, yep, couples and families, not for me, kids, not for me, then yeah, I would not get a marriage and family therapy degree. You're, you're free to, and I get what you're saying. You're thinking, well, I see the value in getting a marriage and family therapy degree because it would teach me about relationships and this kind of thing. But mental health counseling programs can teach about relationships for sure, depending on the program and the professor and the class. You can also, in a marriage and family or in a mental health counseling program, you can sometimes take uh, family therapy classes as electives. Like at Antioch University Seattle, we have a lot of programs happening at the same time. We have a psychology program, sex therapy program, art therapy, drama therapy, dance movement therapy, mental health counseling, marriage and family therapy. What am I leaving out? Play therapy. And so when you are in the mental health counseling program at Antioch Seattle, it is very easy to just step over and take some of the family therapy program classes. In fact, the MHC program actually includes some core classes in the, in the MFT program as part of their program because we basically have the same foundation. Anyway, so yeah, I wouldn't recommend getting a, I wouldn't recommend um, uh, complicating things for yourself. Your second question is, is KCREP accreditation important? So again, most of you probably don't know what this means or care. But yes, KCREP accreditation is important, but it's important to know what it means. To be accredited by anything, all that it means is that some auditors have reviewed the program and the program meets their requirements. But as a program director, a former program director who definitely went through a lot of accreditation process, I, I five years ago, I basically single-handedly got my program reaccredited, and it was it was a process, <laughs> and it took years, and it was I never want to do it again. And the the accreditation process doesn't really look at what I think should be looked at, which is what exactly are the students learning? Now, they, of course, will get into that kind of, but they end up focusing on process a lot. I won't go into the weeds on this, but I mean, accreditation is great and it's important and I get the point. But the fact is, is that you could have a accredited program and have it be terrible and have it not be actually good for students. You could also have a non-accredited program that is the best program in the world. There's just no way to know. And it's one of the problems with being a prospective student. It's like, well, how do you choose? But in general, a K-care program or a co-empty program for marriage and family therapy or an APA accredited program for psychology, I don't know what the social work accreditation name is, but you know, the, the highest accreditation that a program can get. Finding a program that is accredited by that accrediting body is likely an indication of quality, but doesn't guarantee it. And if it doesn't exist, you know, and if a program doesn't have that accreditation, it doesn't mean it doesn't have a good program. So, but if I were a student today and I was looking around, I would only choose a program that was accredited for a, for a variety of reasons. Uh, namely what I said, but also because accredited programs by definition have to meet the guidelines for licensure and some non-accredited programs do not. There are non-accredited programs where you can get a master's in marriage and family therapy or a master's in mental health counseling 
and you graduate and you don't qualify for licensure in the state that you're in. <laughs> and it's like, well, what good was the GD degree if you can't get licensed and practiced? And so if you're accredited, uh, by definition, you do at least for co-AFD. Well, I'm, I'm only 99% sure of that. Of course, there could be anomalies, but and in my state anyway, when you go to one of these high accredited programs, depending on the program, in all likelihood, you get certain benefits of postgrad. Anyway, I won't go into the weeds on it, but hope you get my point. All right, this next email is from patron Cece from Sacramento. She writes, what is the difference between a narcissistic abusive relationship versus a psychopathic abusive relationship? I love your podcast and your videos on YouTube. I do therapy weekly, but I have found your videos to be very helpful to me in a number of ways. For a while, I saw all men as evil and hurtful, but in watching and listening to you, I honestly feel as if I'm having a corrective experience. End of email. Yeah, I'm glad for you, Cece, that you have that. Uh, we can all look towards different avenues of having corrective experiences and I've heard other people say a similar thing, and so I'm happy for that. Uh, I've had students and obviously clients who have told me similar things. There's there's a lot of women out there who have had 100% negative experiences with men, and even though intellectually they might know that all men are not evil, in their bones they know all men are evil. And to experience me as a non-evil person or to experience Bob as a non-evil person it can be it can be very healing, and so I'm happy for you in that way. Uh, your question is the difference between narcissistic abuse and psychopathic abuse. So it depends on what we're calling narcissistic. It depends on what we're calling psychopathic. But the experts, when they look at narcissistic personality disorder and psychopathic personality disorder, these are very different things. And although they are conceptualized differently sometimes they can be experienced similarly. So the difference in terms of what it feels like between narcissistic abusive person, you know, a narcissistic personality person being abusive and a psychopathic person being abusive to you, it, it can feel the same. It's still abuse, right? If, if a tall person punches you in the face versus a short person punches you in the face, it, you know, there's no difference. It's still being punched in the face. So, it's not going to feel very different. But what a lot of people are asking about is I was abused by, you know, one or more people in my past. And I don't know if they were narcissistic or if they were psychopathic. And the fact is, is you probably won't ever know that because you're not a clinician and you're not an expert clinician. Most clinicians don't understand narcissism or psychopathy. So I mean, all you have to do is look on the internet and dare I say, look at clinicians on YouTube and see that there's a vast array of understandings of psychopathy. Even how to pronounce the word psychopathy sometimes escapes some clinicians on YouTube. Anyway, the point is, is that there's a lot of people on the internet who are talking about narcissistic abuse in a way that to me sounds like they're talking about psychopathic abuse. Uh, and fine, it's the internet, but understand that people with narcissistic personality, deep down, they do have the definite capacity for empathy. Now, having said that, I have been abused by people with narcissistic personality disorder in my personal life in some very significant ways, in ways that make my hands sweat right now as I think about it. And 
I'm not saying it's like, you know, because the way I conceptualize people with narcissistic personality disorder, along with Kernberg and others, is that they are deeply hurt on the inside and deeply low self-esteemed on the inside and are trying to mask that through a very elaborate sense of grandiosity to trick others and themselves that they're totally fine and everything's good and that they're the best. When deep down they know that they know absolutely 100% that they are not the best. They know they're the worst. And so uh, according to that conceptualization, then you feel bad for people with narcissistic personality disorder. Okay, good. We should feel bad for everyone really who is suffering. And people with psychopathy suffer too. My goodness, do they suffer? It's just in a different way. But the point is, is that just because we can have compassion, we can recognize someone's suffering, doesn't mean that they don't cause trauma in our lives and doesn't mean that we don't keep them at a 10-foot pole. There are people with narcissistic personality disorder in my personal life. I have distanced myself from them very certainly, <laughs> like without any guilt or shame or ambiguity. I have moved away very decidedly from people who have, uh, you know, upper end narcissistic personality disorder. Now, if I have a client who has narcissistic personality disorder, then I don't distance myself from them because one, it's my job to help and I'm an expert. And two, they can't really hurt me because they're not involved in my personal life. Might I have some hurt countertransference? Maybe a little, but nothing like I would if I was involved with them personally, like the way I have had with people in my personal life. It's all just a matter of how you conceptualize it. If you came to me and said, all right, let's look at those past people that you're identifying as suffering from narcissistic personality disorder who abused you. And let's, you know, roll through the different observations that you have, Kirk, of those people. You could make an argument that I'm actually not describing someone with narcissism. I'm, I'm describing someone with psychopathy. People with psychopathic personality can be narcissistic. People with narcissistic personality disorder can come across as psychopathic, can be callous, can be abusive, can be uncaring towards other people, for sure. This is why they're considered to be cluster B, antisocial, narcissism, you know, histrionic borderline, is that there's some overlap between these. Uh, not necessarily, for sure, but there can be. So sometimes it's just a matter of, of how you look at it. For example, a lot of people... Uh, will look at gender and it'll affect them how they assess people. So for uh, with borderline, for example, men, and research shows this, men who suffer from borderline personality disorder are often misdiagnosed as being narcissistic. And women with narcissistic personality disorder are often misdiagnosed as having borderline. So it, it's all just how you look at it. and uh, But they come from different places. The narcissistic person who is abusing you is doing so because they are desperate to establish themselves as being better than you. They're desperate to avoid being blamed for things. They're desperate to convince themselves that, that they're superior, which means that they often will have to put other people down in various different ways. They're also suffering a great deal. People with narcissistic personality disorder are in a constant state of suffering. And when you're suffering, you're in a bad mood. You're going to feel entitled. You know, there's just all sorts of things that can cause all sorts of, uh, you know, pain around those people. But that's where it comes from. The psychopathic person just doesn't care about your feelings. They just don't care. And they probably never will. 
And when they're hurting you, it's because you're just an object. You're just something in their way. You're just a tool to be manipulated so that they can get something out of you. Now, that implies somehow that psych- psychopathic people are happy because they're conning people around them. No. They're, there's a various different ways of looking at psychopathic people, but as I said, they're almost always suffering greatly. So even if you give a psychopath everything that they want and you let them abuse other people, they're still not happy. So what's wrong there, right? Well, it's a personality disorder. There's something, there's something deeply wrong with their character and they're chasing something uh, in happiness, to, to get happiness, but it's not actually going to make them happy. In some ways, you could look at psychopathic people as so out of touch with their humanity and with their compassion and love and empathy for other people that they're chasing a bunch of dreams and ghosts to get happy and meanwhile abusing people and manipulating and harming people along the way. But they're never chasing what they should be chasing, which is secure attachments with other people. But when you offer that up to them, it doesn't resonate with them because they have a really hard time understanding what's happening there. Now, that's just how I see psychopaths. Other people see them as essentially just born monsters. But in my view, if people are born monsters, then they should be happy when they win. But psychopaths are rarely happy of of anything. (laughs) And so uh, can they be happy? Can they be satisfied sometimes? Sure. But overall, like Ted Bundy, was he happy? You know, did he seem like a happy person? He clearly was not. When you actually listen to the, the audio tapes of interview with him, interviews with him that it's on Netflix came out a couple years ago. You clearly hear a suffering individual. Uh, People would say he deserves it. Probably does killed lots of people. But point is, is that that's how I see it. And other people see it differently. And that's just the glory of our field. It's not a hard science in that way. It's a, it's a way of seeing the world. It's wisdom, it's experience, it's your paradigm, all that kind of stuff. All right. Well, that was fun. Um, I answered a bunch of emails and everyone out there, please, please take care of yourself. And if you want to email me, always go to the website, click on the contact page, email, and try to keep the email short. Because if they're real long, I, I, one, don't have time to read them. And two, I just really love the short ones when people just ask the questions. I get that you want to tell me your story. And my goodness, I loved it. So having a popular or a more popular podcast these days, you know, there's pros and cons. I, I could go over the pros. It's kind of obvious. But one of the biggest cons is that I cannot answer everyone's emails. Uh, three years ago, I could answer every single, whenever I would do these episodes where I would, and some of you are, have been with me long enough to know this. I used to do these episodes where I'd answer all the emails and I would get to the end and I'd be like, okay, I'm done. I have answered every, everyone's emails in terms of, and that just felt great to me. It felt, it felt complete. It felt polite to the listeners who's t- take the time to email in. And so if, if I'm going to even get close to that, that means that you're going to have to be brief, which, you know, sucks because you're not going to be able to tell me your whole thing. But I will tell you that when people give me a lot of background, a lot of times it's, I, I just have more questions. You know, I'm a therapist. I, I assess people in a very, in a very deep way. 
And when I get a lot of background, I'm like, uh, I guess I kind of get a picture from that, but not really. And so the nature of this relationship in terms of the email episodes is that you're just going to have to ask me a, a short series of questions and just hope that I understand what you're saying. But it's, you know, it's quite possible I'm not going to really get what you're saying. And we might not ever really get each other in the way that you're hoping that I get you. Um, but at the very least, patron uh, Cece from Sacramento, you can know my mind and know that I am not evil and know that I'm trying my best <laughs> because you deserve it. You really, really do. 